Amen. Well, we are back in the book of Galatians. Uh, as John said, we took uh, about a five-week break, a little hiatus, so that we could hear about the exciting things God is doing with our community in the future as we build for the future. But five weeks is a good chunk of time. And so you would not be remiss if you've forgotten some things. That's okay. Uh, you might have no memory of Galatians. Hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully you remember a little bit about what we've talked about. Um, but, but if you have forgotten things, I can summarize it in three points, okay? I'm pretty sure I can do it in three. So, point one, Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia, which, point two, was made up of both Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers, now, that difference in background, uh, theology, understanding was creating some confusion, it was creating some division and tension because the Jewish believers were saying, yes, Grace, of, of course, yes, Jesus, but also you, you really need to live a Jewish lifestyle. You need to obey the law, you need to be circumcised, keep kosher, all of these extra things. And so point three, that made Paul very mad. He is very angry in this book. Because if we add anything to the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. If we add anything to what Jesus has done, it voids it. It says that what he did wasn't enough. And so Paul says to them, you foolish Galatians, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Don't you remember the gospel? Don't you remember what grace is, who Jesus is? That God himself would come and dwell with us. That he would live this, this perfect, spotless, sinless life. And then he would die for us, but he wouldn't stay dead because he's much too good for that and he's much too mighty for that. So he would resurrect himself and then he would invite us into that death and resurrection. And because of what he did, his cross, his blood, his death, his resurrection, because of that, we would get to be his kids. We would get to be his heirs, that we would have full access to him and everything his kingdom carries. Don't you remember this? You foolish Galatians. That is what Paul is saying over and over and over again in this book. And he does this through personal testimonies and theological arguments. But one specific thing he uses is this idea of Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish faith, and the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is a fancy name, but it's just the promise God gave to Abraham that someday through Abraham, through his offspring, through his lineage, that all the nations would be blessed. And that this blessing would actually be God himself. That someday through Abraham's line, all the world, regardless of background, regardless of previous uh, religious experience or understanding, everyone would be able to access God himself. And ultimately, this promise and covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. So that's what's happened thus far. 
And that's especially that Abrahamic thing. That's what we're going to really dig even more into today, okay? But we're back in Galatians. We're in Galatians 4, and it'll come up on the screen for you as well so you can read along. But Paul writes, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. Let's pause. Paul is referencing the story of Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah. Now, to the Jewish believers who were listening to this, they would have instantly gotten that. They would have known the reference and known the story. But we probably need a bit of a refresher on this story. It's not one we talk about a lot. So the the gist of it is that Abraham and Sarah were married, and God gave them that Abrahamic covenant. He said, through your children, Abraham and Sarah, this blessing that's going to be me, this blessing, that this promise that's fulfilled in Jesus, it's going to come through Abraham and Sarah's child, okay? But they were old. They were very old. They were too old to have a child in the natural. And so they start to get a bit nervous, and they start thinking, I don't know if this is going to happen. I think we might need to do something to to help God with his promise. And so in what was a, a relatively common cultural practice of the time, Sarah gives her servant Hagar to Abraham as his second wife, which is um, the nicest way I can say it. And Abraham and Hagar have a child, Ishmael. Now, eventually, Abraham and Sarah do have their promised child. They call him Isaac. And of course they do, because God keeps his promise. But not before things get messy, because things get messy. Their, their big plan backfires, which, you know, gee whiz, who could have thought that was going to happen? Like, ooh. Yeah. But it, it, it doesn't go well for anyone in the story, because Hagar ends up belittling and berating Sarah. Ishmael mocks Isaac, and Sarah, in turn, is, is very unkind to Hagar, And so Hagar and Ishmael are eventually exiled. And if we play the story out even longer, eventually Ishmael's children, his lineage and line, becomes a nation that directly opposes the Jewish people. They become an opposing, hostile kingdom to the Jews. So it does not go well. Now, today we're going to talk about this story as a metaphor. And so Paul's about to say some really negative things about Hagar. But I just want to park in in the actual story for a moment. Because this story is a tragedy. Hagar is an abuse victim. The only one in the story who treats her well is God. I would even say the only one who treats her as a human is God. But these types of things happen in Scripture. The Bible is full of stories of of terribly evil things, of of slavery and rape and genocide and murder and polygamy and, and just atrocities. 
but the Lord never approves of those things. And so when we read the Bible and we see these things happen, we, we can't ignore them. We can't just gloss over them. We have to say, okay, God, what are you doing in the midst of it? What are you saying in the midst of this? Because there are still terribly evil atrocities going on in our world. But God is still speaking in the midst of them. He's still moving. So we need to see what he's doing in these situations so that we know what we can do. What can we speak? How can we release him and his will and heart and plan? So that's, we, we don't have enough time to go into the full Hagar story, but I do want to flag that for you guys because it, it is important that we understand these things when we read scripture. But today we're focusing on the metaphor of it, okay? So let's get back into what Paul is explaining here. So he continues, these things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. That's a reference to Sarah. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. So Mount Sinai is where Moses was given the Ten Commandments and the law. So if Hagar represents Mount Sinai, she represents the law. She represents the covenant that God made there. Now, theologically, we call that the Mosaic Covenant because it was given to Moses. That's not on the test. You don't need to know that. It's just a little fun fact for you. Uh, but, so she represents this, this covenant of the law. And what God gives us at Mount Sinai is this, this idea that we do something so that he does something. We do something to keep ourselves right, to stay in his ways, and he responds. So Mount Sinai, what Hagar represents, the law, it says, um, you know, God says, if you follow my commands, then you're my people. If you listen to my ways, then I'll bless you. If you keep yourself clean and right and holy, then it's going to go well for you. So it creates this two-way street. We do something, God does something. God does something, we do something, right? It's two ways. But that was never the promise. Maybe, hopefully, you can cast your mind back all the way to May when we talked about this last, but we said that the law was never meant to be the promise. It was just meant to be a guide and teacher. So it was supposed to guide us in the things of the Lord. It was supposed to teach us how to live lives faithful to him. But it was never supposed to be the promise. The promise comes through that Abrahamic covenant. The promise is that God himself would come, that all the nations would have a way to be connected and unified with him. That is the promise. That is God's original heart and plan and will and design. And that covenant is only based on God, only him. Abraham and Sarah could not do anything in the natural to have a child. By the time they have Isaac, Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90. They needed supernatural intervention to have that baby. 
But God did it. Because his promises are based on him. It is dependent on him. This covenant is a one-way street. I come with nothing. And Jesus gives everything. Grace is the one-way street. And I think Abraham and Sarah knew this. I think they trusted God. The Bible specifically says that they are man and woman of faith. So we know they had faith. But they got scared. And they started doubting that God would do what he said he was going to do. And so in a moment of weak faith and distrust, they made a bad decision. They made a decision that would hurt other people. But here's the thing. It was just because they were scared, God wasn't going to do what he said he was going to do. And I don't know about you, but like I get that. I relate to that. I think if we're honest, most of us can relate to that. Most of us have had those moments. You know, I'm, uh, I'm an American citizen, which potentially doesn't need to be said because of the boots I'm currently wearing. But <laughs> I'm wearing my American flag ones, if you can't see me back. Uh, but I'm in the process of getting my permanent residency in this country. Yes, it's very exciting. <laughs> Um, And so, you know, in Jesus' name, in a few months, it's all going to be fine and it'll be great. But this journey has taken me 12 years. Oh, yeah, you heard the groans. And these 12 years have not been easy. There have been so many things that have gone wrong with my visa that have kept me from staying in this country. Like, weird, stupid things have happened so that I couldn't be in this country. I was actually thinking about it this week, and I realized that I told four different people about what God was doing in this country and why I believed in the UK, and they said, that sounds great, we want to be a part of it, and they got their visa before me. (laughs) Four different people, four times I had to see that happen. So yeah, there were some moments of weak faith and distrust in these 12 years, okay? But at some point, I had to make a choice. I had to choose. And there was a moment of very tangible, practical choice for me. Because at one point in these 12 years, I had to decide between Coastline and Bournemouth and this other organization in Cambridge. And at the time, Coastline didn't have any way to legally sponsor my visa. All they had was, you know, we love you, Sarah. We believe this is Jesus. We, we want you to be here. But the government hadn't said that. They hadn't agreed to that. There, there was nothing to suggest that this was going to work out. But this other organization, it was all sorted. All I needed to do was send some money in and sign my name and boom, visa. Sounds great. So I, I wrestled with this and I went back and forth and Eventually, I realized that if I were to go with this organization, it was entirely my self-effort. Because I knew, I knew it didn't, you know, I said, Jesus, this doesn't really align with my values. It, I, don't, I don't really think I'd be living my abundant life in Cambridge. But this is, this is the promise, right? This is the visa. This, this other thing, coastline, I, it could go either way. I don't know. 
But what I realized is that if I said yes to this organization, I would be trying to make the promise happen on my back, in my strength, according to my wisdom and my ways. So I took a risk. And I chose to trust that Jesus would do what he promised, that he did have goodness for me. And, you know, so far so good. It's worked out. I like it here. I'm a fan, you know. Uh, Yeah, it's great. This is a great place to be. But we, I had to make the choice. And you all have to make that choice. Because there's not one son, there are two sons. There are two covenants, two belief structures. So you need to choose which one you're going to line up with. There's this one of Mount Sinai, of of Hagar and Ishmael, this one of the law, this one of self-effort and striving and doing things in your own strength. And let me be as clear as I can be. This covenant is a covenant of distrust. If you are trying to make things happen in your own strength and ways, you aren't trusting Jesus. If you think you can do something to earn salvation, to earn favor, to earn the affection of God, you are not trusting Jesus. Or there's this other one, this covenant represented by Isaac and Sarah, this covenant of grace, this covenant that depends on him and trusts and relies on him. And those two things cannot coexist. You cannot take a little bit of religion and striving and a little bit of grace and faith and mix uh, distrust and trust. They're oil and water. They can't mix. They cannot coexist. Because when we do that, what we're actually trying to mix is death and life. We are trying to mix slavery and freedom. It cannot happen. They are opposing kingdoms. Now, you may or may not have realized this, but this past week was the 4th of July, which is America's Independence Day. And it's a day where we celebrate freedom and we remember how we got it. But the, don't worry, I'm not gonna tell how we got it. (laughs) You all know how we got it, yeah. (laughs) I'm kidding, kidding. obviously I'm choosing the UK, guys. You know I love the UK. But... (laughs) But the the American idea of freedom and the, the Western modern cultural idea and definition of freedom is not Christian freedom. It's not what Paul's talking about when he talks about the free woman. See, those early Americans, they fought to get rid of authority so that they could have autonomy. They wanted independence. They wanted to do things their own way. But... Christian freedom flips that. And it says, I give up my autonomy. I give up my independence so that I can come under the authority of Christ. Because what it realizes is that this other definition of freedom, this modern idea that, well, I can do anything I want and you can't stop me, that's not freedom. That actually enslaves us. It enslaves us to to ourselves, to our sin, to our fear. That autonomy puts the burden on us. And we will always fail ourselves. 
It makes us think that we can, you know, if we just do X, Y, Z, it, it, God will do this for us. You know, if, uh, oh, I, I tithe and I give to charity, so I'm going to get that promotion in work. Or, you know, I, um, I, I've lived a pure life and I pray for my spouse, so I'm going to have a great marriage. Or, um, you know, I, I read my Bible every day and, and send my kids to Christian school, so I'm going to have well-behaved kids. Right? <laughs> You're laughing because you know it doesn't work that way. It doesn't. We're not on a two-way street anymore. You're on the wrong road if you think that. And those are good things, right? It's good to tithe. It's good to read your Bible, pray, live pure. Yes, all great things. But not if you're doing them to bend God's arm. Not if you're doing it because you think somehow you could make him give him your favor. That you could make him give you his blessing. No, he is the blessing, and he's already given himself to you. He gave himself completely, fully to you. So you have everything you could need because you have him, and that is the true freedom. The true freedom is that we have a God and a king who knows better than us whose ways are higher than our ways, and who loves us unconditionally. So we can trust him. We can trust what he says, what he's doing in our lives. We can trust that he's going to come through when it doesn't look like he's going to. So what do we do to choose well? What do we do to to live under and stay living under this covenant of grace, this covenant that gives us true freedom? Well, we do what Sarah said, what Paul quotes her as saying here. Get rid of the slave woman and her son. Oh, I didn't read this bit to you yet, have I? Oh, I'm getting so excited, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me, okay, let me read you the whole thing because it's all really good. I just really wanted to get to the freedom bit, you know, this is the fun bit. But it says, this is Paul says, he says, now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. This is who you are. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. You are not children of the slave woman anymore. You're not children of the law anymore. You're not children of anything that would enslave you anymore. You are children of the promise. You are children of the free woman. You are born to live freely. And how do we do that? We get rid of anything that would hinder it. We cut it off. If it is an enemy to your freedom, it is an enemy to you. And I get, I get real riled up about this and really, really passionate because I think this might be my biggest pet peeve about like capital C church, about Christians. Because we have been given everything. We have been given the full freedom of God. But so many of us go back to this covenant, this covenant of striving, this covenant of rules, this covenant of trying to earn anything from Jesus. What are we doing? 
We foolish Galatians. Don't we remember who he is? Don't we remember what his grace has given us? You are born to live freely. So if there is anything stopping you from living freely, if there is anything stopping you from bowing to the feet of King Jesus, if there is anything stopping you from connecting with God, you need to cut it off. And this isn't, this isn't like a joke. This isn't, you know, this isn't happy, clappy church time. No, this is life and death. If you are not living in freedom, you're living in slavery. There are only two sons. There are only two choices, two covenants. And God has given everything so that you can choose freedom. He gave every drop of his blood. It cost him a lot to buy your freedom. So we need to live in it. We can't keep going back to Mount Sinai. And, you know, for for the Galatians, what was hindering their freedom was the law. It was their Jewish customs. For you, it might be an addiction or a sin pattern you can't get rid of. It might be some deep-rooted shame. Maybe there's something in your past that still haunts you. Maybe there's uh, some disappointment that you have with the Lord. But if it is, if it is not for your freedom... It is not for you. And I don't know what all the individual stories are in this room, but I know that many of us are not living in that freedom. We've gone back to Mount Sinai. And so today, this morning, there's a grace to get free again. There's a grace to choose this this covenant of freedom and grace.